Welcome to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. We have the latest developments from the Ottawa convoy. Hamilton businesses ready for COVID-19 restrictions to end. We could soon see work-from-home scenarios coming to an end. A financial boost for ArcelorMittal to Fasco as it goes green. How are border blockades impacting Canada's relationship with the U.S.? And new Argos receiver Brandon Banks says he wants to retire as a Ticat. The GMH podcast starts now. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. Podcast on 900 CHML. The decision was taken by Chief Slowly, completely independent um, from the federal government. And, you know, obviously those are uh, questions that will be put to Chief Slowly. Our focus is to provide tools and resources to the police so that they can do the job of restoring public safety. And that is our focus. That is the voice of Public Safety Minister Marco Mendocino on the resignation yesterday of Ottawa Police Chief Peter Slowly. Welcome back to Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Rick Samprin with you. A uh, political staffer also in the uh, Office of Ontario's Solicitor General, the uh, Director of Communications, no longer employed after recently donating 100 bucks to the convoy protests that have paralyzed the Capitol for more than two weeks now. Um, so a couple of interesting new wrinkles uh, based out of Ottawa and the convoy. Let's discuss both of them with our next guest. Kim Wright is the principal and founder of Wright Strategies and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Good morning, Kim. Good morning, Rick. Let's start with the uh, political staffer, uh, I guess. Um, Not a good look for the provincial government, especially after Premier Doug Ford was a vocal supporter of implementing the Emergencies Act and declared a state of emergency on Friday. This is a bad look. Yeah, and and we're not talking about just any staffer here. We're talking about a director of communications for the Solicitor General, which is essentially Ontario's top policing uh, uh, political political person. So, you know, it does raise some questions as to some of the judgment of how they've how the Ontario government has kind of sat back and watched uh, what had happened in Ottawa for now we're on 20 days. Uh, how how did Windsor get a toehold along the Ambassador Bridge and in some other jurisdictions? So there are certainly questions that are being asked about why this particular staffer and who else might be on that list. Um, and did that have any implications and impacts as to government policy? We have also learned, Rick, that, um, that the convoys had uh, had utilized uh, former Ford Chief of Staff Dean French uh, as their intermediary uh, freelancing a bit last night uh, over the weekend to cut a deal with uh, Ottawa Mayor uh, Jim Watson to try to move the convoys from taking over all of Ottawa to just a certain area. There are lots of questions about that deal and and how it will continue to unfold. But uh, certainly, there are lots of there are lots of questions about the Ford government and 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 their uh, friends and how they're being impacted by this. Yeah, one of the big questions is you know who knew what. Dean French says he didn't tell anybody. It was him and Jim Watson and one of the organizers of the convoy trying to strike a deal. I, I don't know. That's that's a big red flag. There are certainly uh, some red flags on that, to be sure, and there are questions that are going to be asked. I mean, the biggest question that I think people that have seen what has happened in Ottawa in the last 20 days has been, you know, why didn't police get involved sooner? You know, we look to the city of Toronto. They've had protests the last two weekends. Uh, the protesters have come in. There have been road closures. There are certain areas in which uh, the protests have gone on, and then people go home. Uh, that It's been a pretty normal, I guess, normal pace. Uh, for protests in, in the city of Toronto. Uh, there certainly were lessons that other jurisdictions could learn. 
And Ottawa police had every tool at their disposal, even before this Emergencies uh, Measures Act, um, to, to deal with this, whether it's been, you know, your listeners will remember Ottawa police a couple of years back had uh, had gone after two little girls for running a lemonade stand illegally. They can go after two little girls, but these protesters that had convoyed across Canada somehow took them by surprise. I have some serious questions about that. Kim Wright is our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Kim is the principal and founder of Wright Strategies. Let's uh, flip over to Peter Slowly, who resigned yesterday as chief of police in Ottawa. Not too surprising given what has happened over the last two plus weeks, but the timing is certainly curious. It comes a day after the Emergencies Act was invoked. Is this a coincidence? I'm not sure it's a coincidence, uh, you know, but there is certainly there's it's certainly questionable timing. The reality is that the Ottawa police had not had control over the situation. I mean, goodness, the the protesters brought in a hot tub on the weekend. They've brought in saunas. They they built themselves their own structure of a hut uh, to to put up their propane tanks. They really did not have control over the situation from the very beginning, whether that was by choice because they were worried about what potentially would there potentially be firearms uh, within the convoy. Certainly, there are a lot of children that have been there throughout. So I understand the caution from police, but there are questions about how did it get this entrenched and what does that mean for the next sets of protests? Because inevitably, somebody will be upset by something going forward um you know is it okay if you just bring a hot tub with you maybe that's maybe that's the new way that the you know different protest movements will move forward but i doubt that what is going to be the political price you think of enacting the emergencies act i'm not certain that there is a political price at this point um but that will very much depend upon how it is used you know, there are lots of people, there are lots of powers. And even today, there were, even before the Emergencies Act, there were lots of powers that police had on this, but they hadn't utilized them. So the really question will be, how do they use it? What will be the enforcement measures? How long will this stick around? Um, those are the things that we're watching for from the follow-up. But simply enacting it, uh, there will be political hay, but I'm not sure there will be political fallout at this point. Still with the convoy, Candace Bergen flip-flopping or at least softening her stance on supporting uh, the convoy and the protest. Pierre Poiliev, on the other hand, who is going for the leadership of the federal PC party, continues to promote the so-called fights for freedom. Is there a disconnect or is this some strategy here? Well, there's certainly politics at, at play here. And Candace Bergen, the interim leader of the Conservatives, has had, I think, four or five different positions uh, on the convoy, which, I mean, her predecessor, Aaron O'Toole, did similar and got you know, vilified for it. But what's interesting, Rick, is people may not have watched the Pierre Polyev launch video for his leadership bid, but just next to his left elbow was a copy of 1984. Uh, so I feel like this is all within keeping of, of Pierre Polyev stoking some of these fires. Interesting stuff, Kim. Appreciate the time and the great analysis, as always. Terrific. Have a great day. You too. That is Kim Wright, principal and founder, Wright Strategies, uh, breaking down the Peter Slowly uh, resignation and uh, the convoy protest that continues. And of course, the staffer in uh, Premier Doug Ford's office contributing to the convoy protest. Interesting times, uh, both politically and uh, protesting wise. 
You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. As we know, COVID-19 restrictions are going to begin to be lifted as of tomorrow in this province. Social gathering limits are going to go from 50 people indoors, 100 people outdoors. Capacity limits will be removed for several Uh, businesses, institutions like bars and restaurants, gyms, cinemas. It's a good feeling. It's about time. I think we're ready for this. We're more than ready for this. And of course, on March 1st, uh, all capacity limits are gone. Proof of vaccination requirements for all settings will be nullified. There are some businesses, however, who have said that they will continue to use the proof of vaccination system uh, post-March the 1st. They just want to be extra cautious, and I guess they have the right to do so. Marie Nash is the interim CEO of the Hamilton Chamber of Commerce and joins us on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Good morning, Marie. Good morning. Maybe we'll start with the proof of vaccination uh, issue. Some businesses, mm-hmm. as I've said, said they, they plan to keep it for at least a little bit longer than March the 1st. Your, your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think that each business is going to really have to sit back and assess what would be best for them moving forward. There's definitely the idea or the um, you know concern around consumer confidence. So will people feel comfortable heading into indoor places where you remove your mask, like a restaurant, um, and knowing that they could be in the space with the unvaccinated. And I think that is something that um, everybody is going to have to think about individually and their own comfort levels. Um, So there is that concern about consumer confidence. Are people ready for this? Um, Are they mentally ready for that? Um, Anecdotally, I'm I'm hearing a lot of people say, like, we're ready. Like, we, we, you know, a lot of the, like, we've heard a lot of uh, doctors, medical professionals explain why now is the time to remove this and why it makes sense. Um, And a lot of folks are like, yes, we agree, we're ready. Um, Others are not going to be as, you know, as confident or assured, and that's, you know, absolutely fine. Um, But we'll have to wait and see um, if it actually becomes an issue. Um, if we see people not, you know, patronizing those businesses um, who no longer require proof of vax. Um, But it is, you know, absolutely up to the business if they do want to continue with that as well. Is there a buzz among chamber members, among local businesses, knowing that, you know, as of tomorrow, a bunch of restrictions will be eased. And then as of March 1st, you know, all restrictions are pretty much gone. Absolutely. Um, Everyone is definitely very excited. It's been a long road and a lot of hard work to get to this point and everyone doing their collective piece to make sure that we are ready and safe to reopen. Um, You know, I was at a restaurant on Monday. Um, It was a busy day. Most restaurants that were open were buzzing because it was Valentine's. but I was with one of our restaurants and the owner was walking me through the space and showing me where all his tables used to be. And uh, he would be going back to that really soon. And it just almost didn't even feel real for him. You know, it's been a long two years of ups and downs. And uh, he was just over the moon to think that there were going to actually be people in those seats uh, soon enough. So great buzz. Do you get the sense or or maybe you've heard from some local business owners who believe that this could possibly be and and hopefully be the last time we have some COVID restrictions? So that's definitely the sentiment out there. And it's definitely, you know, my sentiment as well. We're really hoping and that this is it. We've created definitely a wall of immunity between 
you know, our, our great, great vaccination rates and, and we're ready for to reopen. Everyone feels ready. Um, we do hope that this is definitely the last time we do, you know, at least this time, businesses were giving a lot more notice. So there was ample notice because uh, predictability is key here for the businesses. So they've been giving an appropriate amount of time to really get ready for that reopening date. Um, but we we also really want to focus on calling for the government to implement some long-term plans. So the, the pandemic has been totally unpredictable, but the response doesn't need to be. So we need to add clarity um, and urge the government to stop thinking, you know, in these short-term increments, the stop-go that all these businesses have been put through and come up with a long-term strategic and, you know, really evidence-based plan to manage any future waves that may possibly be coming our way. Yeah, that would be nice. Maureen Ash is our guest, Interim CEO of the Hamilton Chamber of Commerce. You're listening to Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. What have we learned about Hamilton businesses throughout the pandemic? Oh, my gosh. Resilience. They have definitely been absolutely resilient. Um, the sense of community, helping each other get through these last two last two years has been just incredible to witness. Um, you know, we hosted Hamilton Day back in November and the response uh, from our local businesses to support our communities, to support one another, to really reinvigorate our economy was so overwhelming and incredible to see. You know, we hope to bring that back next year in a much different environment. Yeah, that is for sure. And and hopefully we can stop pivoting because we have pivoted enough. Marie, <laughs> yes, th- I definitely avoided that word. <laughs> <laughs> Darn, I spoiled it. Marie, thanks for the time today. Thank you. Marie Nash, Interim CEO of the Hamilton Chamber of Commerce. And as you heard, local businesses excited. They are ready for the easing of restrictions. And of course, March the 1st, the elimination of most, if not all, restrictions uh, aside from the mask mandate that will still be in place. We are one step closer to the new normal, and it feels really, really good. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. With COVID restrictions lifting, we could see some workplaces um, bring their employees back. I think we're going to see a lot more of that in the uh, weeks to come. Puneet Tiwari is a senior lawyer at Levitt Shake and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Good morning, Puneet. Good morning, Rich. What should most employees expect when they do return to the workplace? Well, uh, you know, it's interesting. We've been waiting for this for a couple of years, and now that it's here, you know, we're not sure what what exactly to expect. But, you know, a lot of it is going to be returning to normal for, uh, uh, you know, for, uh, for part of it. But, uh, you know, we're still going to have, you know, sanitization, a little bit of social distancing, and I think people overall will be a little relieved and a little nervous to go back. Yeah, there's going to be an adjustment period for both employees and employers. Yes, absolutely. Um, you know, over the last couple of years, employers have been really preparing for this, and uh, I think everyone's excited to go back, but, um, you, you know, I personally am quite ready. I think most people are. Some people have really liked working remotely. What is the discussion going to be like between employer and employee if that scenario kind of presents itself? Right now, this is where I think, uh, you know, we're going to see a lot of friction. Mm -hmm. A lot of people are ready to go back, but at the same time, a lot of people uh, are comfortable working from home and want to permanently work from home. And 
we've been calling it the great resignation. But when uh, I, I think when it really comes down to it, people are called back permanently. We're going to see a lot of people wanting to switch jobs or, or leave their job altogether. The other option is if they do stay with their place of employment, but they want to stay at home, there's going to be, I would imagine, some kind of renegotiation to say, all right, if you do this, then this has to happen. Absolutely. And, and we've actually written about this at great length uh, uh, because uh, working from home, it's not a permanent part or a permanent term of your employment. It was a temporary measure due to the pandemic. And now if that's something you want permanently, your employer can actually renegotiate your contract to include it as a term and they could possibly renegotiate your salary or other things as well as a result. Puneet Jabari is our guest, senior lawyer at Levitt Shake. You're listening to Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. We're chatting about COVID restrictions lifting, and uh, we're going to see some um, uh, work-from-home scenarios coming to an end uh, for some employees, if not many employees. What happens if an employer doesn't recall an employee in a timely manner, a.k.a. an employer is really cautious and they keep their employees working remotely, and uh, that employee really does want to come back into the workplace. What happens if that doesn't happen in a specific amount of time? Right now, this is where it could get uh, you know dangerous for employers. If they don't act within uh, you know a reasonable amount of time, working from home could automatically become a permanent part of their uh, employment uh, or permanent condition of their employment, and then. When you recall them later, uh, those employees could just refuse and say, look, no, I, I work from home now. You never recalled us when the pandemic was over, and now you've constructively dismissed me. Over the last couple of years, I would imagine that you've dealt with a wide array of different issues, complaints from both employees and employers. What have been some of the more common issues that you've had to tackle? Well, I, you know, whenever there's, um, you know, recently, I guess, with if there's a vaccine mandate uh, or an unfair or unproperly drafted mandate or policy, we, we've seen a lot of pushback. When there's, uh, you know, either working from home um, and there's new rules around that or, you know, people have been being recalled already and uh, there's pushback uh, on that as well. But I think the number one thing is uh, the layoffs. And that's been going on since the beginning of the pandemic. People have been laid off and they haven't been called back. And we've been having a lot of those employees give our office a call. Have those phone calls quieted down a little bit or has it been uh, rather steady throughout the, the, the pandemic? Well, uh, it, it was steady for the most part of the pandemic, I would say. But uh, over the holidays and at the beginning of the new year, I, I believe that shifted. And rather than uh, layoffs and recalls, it, uh, it turned into terminations. We've seen a lot of terminations even for uh, higher level executives. Uh, and um, I mean, for me, that was, that was a bit surprising. Well, we shall see how the the next uh, few weeks and months come as more and more employees head back into the physical workspace. Puneet, thank you for the time today. Thanks so much, Rick. Puneet Tawari is a senior lawyer at Levitt Shink.
And uh, yeah, that's going to be interesting to see how these uh, employers and employees uh, get together back in the workplace. It'll it'll be the, the case here at the radio station. A lot of people have been working remotely throughout the pandemic. And, uh, I'm, I'm, you know, I can speak for, I think, most, if not all, the employees here at the station that uh, we've kind of grown accustomed to the empty, <laughs> the empty hallways. You know, it's still kind of eerie at times, knowing that there's a lot more people working uh, that are connected to the radio station, and it's going to be great to see them all back. I think in the first week or so, it's going to feel kind of weird, though, because we've been somewhat used to not having so many people in the building. That will probably be the case at your workplace as well. Give it some time, be patient, and uh, be cautious at the same time. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. We will decommission our coke plants and our blast furnaces, as well as our BOF steelmaking spree. Coal will not be used in our future processes here at DeFasco. That is the president and CEO of ArcelorMittal DeFasco, Ron Bedard, as the provincial government's announcing its commitments toward a $1.8 billion green steel transformation at Hamilton's steel giant. Premier Doug Ford in town yesterday to announce that his government is investing half a billion bucks in grants and loans into this project. Welcome back to Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Rick Samprin with you. Pleased to be joined now by Tony Valeri. He's the Vice President of Corporate Affairs at ArcelorMittal DeFasco. Tony, good morning. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Rick. Good morning. That's a lot of money, $500 million from the province, $1.8 billion to go a lot greener at uh, ArcelorMittal DeFasco. What's this money going to be used for? What are you going to be doing? Well, Rick, first of all, thanks for uh, for having me on the show. And um, the investment itself is, is fundamentally changing the way uh, we will make steel. We're going from a coke-based process or using coal to a gas-based process. So we're eliminating... Uh, as you heard Ron say, we're eliminating the coke plants, we're eliminating the blast furnaces, and we're going to an electric arc furnace, which would be uh, fueled by uh, green electric, uh, green electricity, and moving to a direct uh, reduced iron facility that actually melts iron ore, but it does it using gas as opposed to using uh, coal or coke-based uh, process. When so elimination of significant amount of GHGs, uh, about 3 million tons. Wow, that's, that's fantastic. When is this metamorphosis going to begin, and how long is it going to take? Well, uh, the engineering is uh, now ongoing. As you can imagine, there was significant amount of benchmarking going on and investigating of the most advanced technology that we would be able to apply with the most advanced equipment that uh, uh, is available for us. And so engineering in 22, uh, I expect that we will be well into it in 23. And certainly we're indicating by 2028, but we're doing everything we can to accelerate that date as well. How is this going to change the steelmaking process? Is it going to be, it's going to be greener, obviously, but is it going to be quicker? Uh, not necessarily quicker. Uh, this is really an investment in, in the decarbonization of steelmaking. I think, you know, it's, it's uh, you know, steel is a very carbon intensive uh, sector. Uh, the investment that we are making is focused on eliminating that carbon and using gas. And so while we start with natural gas, which is cleaner than coal or coke-based process, ultimately our, our goal is to adapt to hydrogen once the hydrogen supply and the pricing of hydrogen is, is available, which will get us further into our net zero and eliminating uh, the full 5 million tons of GHG. What's the target date for the hydrogen process? 
Well, the hydrogen is really contingent on uh, the infrastructure being built. So I know the province of Ontario and the government of Canada are out consulting on the kind of infrastructure that needs to be uh, built. Uh, many uh, energy providers are also engaged in looking at how we can, tra- how they can transform their pipelines, how they can transform their process to deliver hydrogen, where today they might be delivering natural gas or delivering another type of fuel. Uh, with the increased demand in hydrogen, uh, certainly the infrastructure will become much more affordable, it'll make much more sense, and certainly get us there. All the projections seem to indicate, you know, certainly before 2050, um, but we're, we're hoping that, you know, 2035, 2040, that that type of uh, alternative energy would be available at scale. But we're hoping to adopt uh, some of that hydrogen use uh, earlier than that. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML, Tony Valeri, Vice President, Corporate Affairs, ArcelorMittal, DeFasco. We're talking about uh, DeFasco going a lot greener in the years to come. How is this funding, how is this change going to impact the workforce at ArcelorMittal, DeFasco? Does this mean more jobs? Does this mean fewer jobs or different jobs? Well, what it, what it means, Rick, is the sustainability of employment uh, here in Hamilton. I think the, the, the reset of the primary footprint for DeFasco, um, is, it's, it'll have generational impacts. We will be able to sustain thousands of, of jobs uh, over the next, uh, I'm going to say over the next century, because it's that transformational in terms of the investment. The actual uh, facility itself, moving to a DRI and, a, and another EAF, will require uh, less employment. Uh, it will require less jobs, but those positions uh, will be dealt with through, uh, through retirements and attrition. Uh, we're obviously experiencing the same number of, uh, of impact, similar impacts to others with respect to retirements. And so we're going to manage the reduction in that way, but also we will require significant upskilling and training uh, for these new uh, for these new positions as they as they begin to adapt to a different way of making steel with much more advanced technologically advanced uh, equipment. So overall, I would say the investment is really really positive for DeFasco, but also very positive for our community, which you know we've all we've all grown up and lived in uh, for for all these years. And I really I'm really really proud of of the company and really thankful for the government contribution but i know full well that that this investment will will create employment for many many decades to come for many hamiltonians yeah this is a great news story going green solidifying jobs um making a big impact in the community as ArcelorMittal defasco has done for decades now tony appreciate the time thanks for joining us and good luck with this project going forward Thank you very much, Rick. As Tony Valeri, Vice President, Corporate Affairs, ArcelorMittal DeFasco, as they embark on a massive green steel transformation to the tune of nearly $2 billion at uh, the Hamilton Steel Giants. Pretty cool. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. The blockades at the Canada-U.S. border crossings uh, have caused some trade tensions between the two countries, but will the damage be long-lasting? Dr. Sylvanus Kwaku Afas Sabu is a professor in the Department of Food, Agriculture, and Research Economics at the University of Guelph and joins us now. Dr. Afasabu, good morning. How are you? Good morning. How are you? I'm, I'm great. What kind of damage has been done? One, I think that, that, that because the blockade was uh, for about um, a week or days, some few days, 
directly it has negatively negatively impacted trade flow between the two countries. You know, the blockade, this particular ambassador breach accounts for about 30% of the total trade flow between U.S. and Canada. So directly, trade flow between the two countries has been impacted negatively. And, you know, to add to that, you know that the previous years, about two to three years, especially during the Trump regime, Canada and U.S. had had a very difficult trading relationship. First, it started with the the renegotiation of NAFTA, where Trump, Donald Trump, directly attacked Canada, and it was it almost led to the collapse of the the only free trade agreement in in North North, North America. And then, second was the imposition of the steel and aluminium tariffs on Canadian uh, uh, metal products. So there has been continuous and such such kind of occurrences create a lot of uns, uh, trading and uh, uncertainties for the trade for the for the trade sector. Absolutely, so, Doctor Afasibu, is there a certain sector of the Canadian economy that is going to be more vulnerable to potentially being shut off by the U.S. or or American companies? Of course, both the manufacturing and then agriculture sector will be affected negatively. You know, when you look at the when you look at um, the manufacturing sector, especially within the automobile industry, you see that the North American supply chain has been built such that goods are produced across both borders. You see a lot of uh, transportation of cars and spare parts going across the two borders. So directly, those sectors, especially the automobile sector, will be affected. And in addition to that, agriculture sector will also be affected greatly because there is a huge trade in agriculture product between the U.S. and Canada. And most often, because agriculture products are perishable goods, the best way to transport them is through the road networks because they have like the they have the refrigerators installed on some of these things on some of the trucks. So it's, it's the best way to transport goods across the two the two countries. So agriculture sector would also be negatively affected. Yeah. Uh, many people believe the blockades have heightened the buy American and American first mentality in the U.S. Is that going to be reversible? Of, of course, it it, it it could because you know Trump started with this uh, uh, um, American press rhetoric and. A lot of people, when trade relations between two countries become very erratic or becomes very uncertain, most businesses will try to look inward or they may try to look for alternative sources. They could maybe source their products or inputs or intermediate products from. So when trade relations become very unstable, businesses will look within their own country. They will look within so that they can be able to buy their own goods so that it it, 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 you don't depend on a foreign country for your food, especially food is so important to every country. Every country wants to be self-sufficient when it comes to food. So when such relations become very unstable or become very uncertain, businesses would try to look within. Every country would try to be self-sufficient. So it might promote a, a first America. Everybody would want to buy goods from within their own country. So it, it, it has that tendency. Dr. Afasibu, we're out of time. Thank you for your time today. Enjoy the rest of the day. Thank you, too, Bill.
That is Dr. Sylvanus Kwaku Afasibu, professor in the Department of Food, Agriculture, and Resource, uh, Resource Economics at the University of Guelph, uh, researching international trade, political economy, and globalization. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. We have a special guest today. You know him as Speedy B. His regular name, I guess, is Brandon Banks, and he's uh, a new member of the Toronto Argonauts. Brandon, how are you? I'm doing well. How are you doing? I'm good. How does it feel after signing with the Toronto Argonauts? Uh, definitely a weird feeling. Uh, I don't think it really has hit me yet, obviously, because I haven't like put their uniform on yet. But um, it's, a, it's a weird feeling, but I'm happy for a change. Now, given the rivalry, it's one of the most heated rivalry in uh, the CFL. Was there any hesitation on your part to join the Argos? Of course it was. I mean, of course it was. Um, obviously... Um, like you said, the rivalry and then all the dedicated years I gave Hamilton and the way the fans have, you know, made me almost hate them. But um, at the end of the day, it's a business. And I'm, I'm hopefully hopefully everyone understands that. And um, and hopefully, you know, time would help that and everybody would move on. Uh, after Jagera Davis went from the Ticats to the Argos, was it an easier decision to join Toronto? Of course it was. Anytime you got a guy that well, he's been four or five straight great cups. I mean, it'll give you a little bit more motivation that because, uh, my I don't, I'm not, I don't think I'm trying to prove anything other than that I can win a championship. So I'm there to uh, help win, help uh, Toronto win a championship now. And I think by adding Jagarit, that's always a plus. Uh, everyone knows what he can do. Uh, so I'm just trying to go in and find my role and hopefully I can contribute a little bit. Now, Toronto's first game in Hamilton is August the 12th. Have you thought about that first game at Tim Hortons Field with a different colored uniform on? I have. I have. I mean, like I said, it hasn't really hit me yet uh, that I'm going to be at a visitor's locker room until it actually happens. But uh, hopefully I don't get booed too much, and hopefully everyone embraces me for the hard work that I try to put in. I promise I try to get them guys a great cup, but unfortunately it didn't happen. But uh, I understand, but um, it's, it's, new, it's, a new, it's a new time for me. There's no doubt there's going to be a handful of boos. I can imagine that given the rivalry, <laughs> but I think there's going to be an overwhelming standing ovation when you're on the field because you had, you know, eight fantastic seasons with the black and gold. You know, you're one of the most iconic players in Ticats history, and this is a franchise that goes back, you know, more than 150 years. What are some of the things you've been thinking about as you've been going through this process? Uh, I've just been thinking about everything. I just pretty much I've been thinking about all the eight years so that I had there. Um, to be honest, to first off, I was, I want to thank the Ticast organization uh, for man, d- d- pretty much making it my second home and, and embracing me and teaching me the the Canadian life and the, the Canadian football. Uh, what it's really about. Um, it's first class organization. Uh, one of the best organizations I've been around. The people, Coach O, is one of the best people I ever met in my life. Um, it just was the greatest, greatest eight years of my life. I grew as a man there at the same time. And, um, it was first class organization. Just sometimes everybody, as everybody knows, things always come to an end and it was just time to move on. Were you surprised at how things did end in Hamilton? Did you see yourself retiring as a Ticat? I did. I did. But unfortunately, um, the way things went the last two years, um, you know, a COVID year and then. Uh, the Ticats brought in some guys that was very, very good. Uh, some some good young, productive wide receivers, and they wanted to go young and had some different views. So, uh, I mean, it, it led to that. And everything, like I said, is mutual. Like I said, it's first class organization. I thank you for everything. And one thing I know when I, my dad is to retire, they're ready, prepared for me to uh, come in and retire as a Ticat. 
That's awesome. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML is Brandon Banks. Uh, you went up against defensive players with the Ticats in practice. Which mm-hmm. player on Hamilton are you most looking forward to going head-to-head in a game? Uh, you already know. It's Simone Lawrence. I can't wait really <laughs> to play against my guy. Man. That's, that's my, one of my best friends in Canada. But obviously, you know what type of guy Simone is. He's a great athlete on the field. And obviously, he talks a lot. And he definitely backs it up. He's definitely one of the best uh, competitors I've ever been around. So I can't wait to, you know, line up and see him on the other side of the ball and him say something to me to rile me up a little bit. Yeah, fans are going to love watching that. That's for sure. Did you consider right. any other teams other than Toronto? Yeah, I did. And why didn't that work out? Was it just a situational thing? Yeah, it was just a situational thing. Um, like I said, I'm, I'm pretty much trying to win now. And, uh, Trying pretty much trying to go in and go contribute right now, and I think I still can uh, do a, multi, a lot of multiple things as far as like more than being just a slot receiver. I think I still can punt return and things like that. So I think the opportunity was there uh, in t- Toronto uh, due to the relationship I built with uh, Pinball. Uh, he contributed a lot with that. So I think my my best opportunity to still show that on Speedy B was in Toronto. Given the uh, geography of Canada, was it also important for you to stay in the East Division? Uh, I'll be honest with you. Stand like in that location with me, knowing that location was a, was a big was a big part of it as well. Mm-hmm. What kind of reception do you think you're going to get from Ticats fans? Ah uh, man, it's going to be tough because I already got a tough reception already. I, <laughs> I know it's going to be uh, it's, it'll probably go both ways. Obviously, obviously, it's going to be some people that you know probably want the best for me regardless. But obviously, it's going to be them real diehard fans that. You know, that's really dedicated and I probably feel a certain way because obviously I went to the rival team. So it's going to go both ways. But I understand that at the same time. I just wish they would understand that it's a business. And at the end of the day, I want them to know that Ty Cats is my heart. And, you know, I always have a second home in Hamilton. Like I said, when I'm ready to retire, I'm definitely retiring as a Ty Cat. What is your biggest highlight? And you had many of them in your seven or eight seasons with uh, with Hamilton. What is your biggest highlight with the Ty Cats? Uh, my biggest highlight, uh, probably to eat the East final against Montreal, uh, part, the personal, personal as personally, uh, selfishly probably the East final, but overall as a tight cat, probably the open day in the stadium. I mean, that was a different kind of environment. It, like it was just, the city was just, you know, no special moment for the city, you know what I mean? Uh, for the opening of the stadium. I like that moment as well, but personally, uh, probably the Montreal Eastern final. Um, you're on the wrong side of 30, as they say in the football world. How many more years do you think you have left? Uh, I have no idea. <laughs> the, way <I'm, laughs> the way I'm feeling right now, I got I got a cool two or three. All right. Well, hey, if it's two or three in an Argos uniform, we'll be uh, spoiled for it because we love watching you on the field. It's too bad it's not in black and gold colors, but <laughs> we'll be cheering you on nonetheless, obviously, uh, except for when you're playing against the Ticats. Speedy, appreciate the time. Uh, best of luck with Toronto as well. Uh, thank you, and thank you guys for having me, and thank you guys for supporting me through the years, and I just want, wish everybody the best, and thanks, and wish everybody well. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.